Turn with me this morning to John chapter 2. Perhaps you saw out on the sign, you saw theology of wine, and you thought, this is the sermon I want to hear. I've waited a long time for Randy to come around and uh, start really digging in. Um, the vine, the parable of the vineyard, um, Noah, the first thing that he planted after he came out of the ark was a vineyard. Uh, the vine and the grape and wine are throughout Scripture. Uh, they are in, in almost every book because both culture and part of that is, is obvious. That's what they planted. That's what they drank. It was fermented. It was wine. We'll see in a minute. But it was also theology, as we'll see here when we come to the table. Wine, in our case, juice, it stands for the blood of Christ. It is a common element used by the Lord to communicate his grace to us. So this is all throughout scripture. And here we're going to read in in chapter 2, the first 11 verses. This is the first miracle that Jesus does. And he turns water into wine. So will you stand with me as I read the word of God. Heavenly Father, come upon us that we might have understanding. That we might see clearly what your word says, and how we are to live and order our lives, how we are to look at the things that you provide for us, that we might give you glory in all that we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do you have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, remember that, that's a little important little phrase there, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now you want to keep your finger there, but turn over to Matthew chapter 25. Okay, That's where we're going to start. Now before we get into the passage, a few words of clarification uh, of clarification, I've heard this passage preached on or taught on in a variety of ways. 
but there's no way to get around the Greek words and the meanings. It means wine. It doesn't mean grape juice. It doesn't mean uh, water that has been tainted with wine. It means fermented wine. Uh, this is why, as I said earlier, vines are so often mentioned throughout Scripture. And wine is an integral part both of their society and their culture, but also of theology. Also of theology. It says wine, it means wine. And not just regular wine, but what kind? The best wine. Yeah, the best wine. That is theologically important as well. Now, prior to the advent of modern methods, it was really impossible to have grape juice. Remember the Middle East, it's a pretty hot place, and if you just crushed some grapes and had some juice, it wouldn't take long before it began to sour and go bad. This is before Mr. Welch came along, remember that, okay, before Mr. Welch. Now, the Bible speaks very strongly and very clearly against drunkenness, okay, and so far as I can tell in the Bible, it doesn't speak against wine, it only speaks against drunkenness. And we as believers who are informed by Scripture have to come to grips with, the, with the, that line between when does wine turn into drunkenness, okay? If one glass of wine makes you tipsy, then perhaps you should only share a half a glass of wine or a quarter of a glass. If it takes five glasses of wine for you to become a little bit uh, uh, changed in your personality, then perhaps three glasses of wine is as far as you should go. Okay, It's not wine, it is the uh, abuse of it. When you go and your personality begins to change, that's the drunkenness aspect. Okay, Scripture speaks very clearly against drunkenness. But part of the culture was the use of wine here. And as I said, I believe it's very important theologically. It is set forth in scriptures in, in a variety of places as a source of joy. It makes a man's heart glad, okay? It's called the blood of grapes, and it is wine that is chosen to represent the blood of Christ. And the rabbis in, in uh, both the, the Old and New Testament talk about where there is wine, there is a man's heart is full of, of joy, okay? Now, one last observation before we get into the passage is that in in history, and even in our modern-day society, we can see almost every healing miracle of Christ has been duplicated. As I, I told you about uh, the gentleman I met in Portland and had the very, very uh, uh, terrible brain tumors, and one of them is simply gone, and the doctors have never seen that, so they don't know how to proceed with this tumor that is gone. Okay, so we've seen those types of healing miracles. Um, I've, I've heard, I've not seen them myself, in places where the gospel is going for the first time, other types of miracles that are really, uh, that are scriptural. Uh, but I've never seen or heard of a miracle like the wedding at Cana. Okay? Now, now maybe if you want to have a party at your house and, and put some jars out at, by the door, uh, and, and we could pray and see what would happen. I don't know. But I've never seen a miracle like this or heard about one. Okay? Nothing that parallels the turning the water into wine. Now, a wedding. Now, I've asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 25 because this is an illustration of a New Testament wedding. Okay? So we get all of these things together. And a wedding was no small event. Now, they're not small today. I think the average price of a wedding, you throw everything together, um, you know, you're going to spend, and I've got three daughters, you're going to spend twenty or $30,000, not we're not going to spend twenty or $30,000 on a wedding, okay? But, but, you know, weddings are expensive. 
I have to reveal to you some of my weaknesses. I have watched say yes to the dress. Okay? Even when my daughters are not in the room, I've looked at it. <laughs> and they go, well, how much do you want to spend? Well, I want to spend $10,000 on my dress. $10,000? I don't spend $10,000 on my suits. This is a wedding dress, though. But it's, how many times are you going to wear a wedding dress? Once is the plan. Okay? And then what happens to it? You take it to the dry cleaner. They put it in, in that blue bag. And it's hermetically sealed. And you put it in a box and you put it under your bed, right? Um, and then on, on what anniversary, do you, ladies, do you get it out to see if you can still wear it? I, I don't know. You decide that. I, I won't go there, okay? Uh, but that's what happens to it. So you hear $10,000 on a dress to hide under the bed, okay? Or maybe pass on to your daughter and she's just going to cut it up because she won't like the style. Well, a wedding in New Testament times involved the entire community. Okay, it was a big event. This is a typically poor, typically coarse, and, and difficult life culture. And when there was a chance for a wedding, jobs stopped. We didn't go out and harvest the crops. I mean, we just went and celebrated. And the typical wedding of New Testament times lasted from two to seven days. Now, that's a reception. Okay, two to seven days. And... And as I said, what else was there to do besides work? I mean, this was one of those things that everybody got involved with. The whole community came. It was a big shindig. Matthew 25, let's look there. This is a parable about the kingdom. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, this is the way that it was structured in New Testament times. Okay? Uh, some time ago, the fathers would get together, they'd settle on a bride price and, and all of those things. They would separate. Now, that was the time of the engagement. We know that Joseph and Mary were engaged to be betrothed. At that time, that was, had the same legal weight as being married, except they lived apart. They didn't come together and consummate their, wedding, their marriage. Well, here at the wedding, you've got the groom and his family and his wedding party over here on this side of town. And you've got the bridegroom, uh, uh, the bride over here with her wedding party. And what happens is the groom takes all of his crowd and he starts off across town. And they've got the torches going if it's at night and it's a big party. And they come over and they get the bride and they collect her. Here we go. Um, here, and, and this is an illustration of, of them waiting for the groom's party to come over the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom five of them were foolish and five were prudent when the foolish took their lamps they took no oil with them but the prudent took oil in the flasks along with their lamps now while the bridegroom was delaying they all got drowsy and began to sleep but at midnight there was a shout behold the bridegroom come out and meet him so here we have the wedding party over here, the, the, the ladies, and they're all waiting for the groom and his party to come get them, and there's been a delay. And now, in a sense, the, uh, the, the foolish virgins didn't have enough oil, so they want some more. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered no, saying, There will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves." 
While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Okay, it's also a, a story of being prepared for the coming of Christ, but it also illustrates the wedding. Okay, the groom comes and his party, and he collects those who are ready, in, in this sense, the five, uh, the five of the wedding party, and he takes them back and parades through the streets, it's a big shindig, back to the wedding feast. And then they begin the wedding feast. And as I said, it goes on and on two to seven days. Uh, forget your job, forget the crops, forget everything else, it is time to party. And they didn't, remember the couple really didn't come together until after the ceremony. But, but you know, the feast is going on for seven, let's say it's going on for seven days. And every night they would go and get the bride and groom, put them in their bridal robes, and they would carry them around town, have the torches, and it would be a big announcement, like here come the bride and the groom. Not much privacy for honeymooning. Uh, but a big celebration, okay, a big celebration. Because it was really a time of joy, really a time of excitement. So, back to John chapter 2. Why was Jesus invited to the wedding? It doesn't really say. Now, perhaps his mother was, uh, she seems to have a place of prominence here. Perhaps it was a family friend. Perhaps it was a, a relative. Uh, but more than anything else, it shows, I think, that Jesus was included in the lives of regular people, even when they were having a good time. See, it's okay to have a good time as a Christian. Okay? We don't have to be dour. We don't have to be serious all the time. And, and I understand that uh, you know, as, a, uh, as a strong Calvinist, we have this uh, reputation of being uh, the frozen chosen. Uh, you know, praise God that you're here. I'm so glad. Okay. Now, it's okay to be happy, and it's okay to enjoy the things of the world in celebration. Now, that joy, that's just temporary happiness, understand. That can never replace the joy that comes with Christ. Okay? And that joy, which is within us as Christians, must be one of the things that really draws non-believers to the faith. Do you have a joy within you that cannot be taken? Happiness can be taken. And if you've ever had too much wine, you know that the next day you're not very happy, okay? But if you're a Christian, that joy can never be taken from you because it is given to us and placed within us by Christ himself. It is the joy of our salvation, the joy of our salvation. Well, the wine required for the feast ran out. And it's not like today where you could run down to the ABC store or to Publix and, and, and resupply. There was nothing, nothing like that. Uh, and this is very embarrassing to the host. Okay? You have to understand that this is a culture really focused on hospitality. On hospitality. So if I came to your house, you were obligated. Remember the, the man who shows up at the house, the parable of the man who shows up at midnight. And, and the guy goes next door to get bread. Okay, if somebody shows up at my house at midnight, well, you know, you're not getting fed. Okay, <laughs> I'll give you the sofa, but uh, we'll talk about breakfast. But I'm not going next door to buy you or to, to try to get you something to eat. That's the culture, though. Okay, hospitality was very important. And this was an embarrassment to the wedding party. Uh, in New Testament times, wine was a symbol of joy. As I said, the rabbi said, without wine... There's no joy. So to run out of wine would be the same as, I don't know, admitting 
It wasn't any fun anymore, that there was no more celebration. Okay? It was a cultural thing. It was a symbol of all of these things together. So look at verse 4. Um, uh, verse 3, And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, in English, it sounds, it sounds a little sharp. Uh, or, or, you know, if, if we put the right intonation, it sounds even derogatory as he speaks to his mother. That's not the way it is in Greek. Okay? It is actually respectful. It's a respectful reply by Christ to his mother. It says, My hour has not come. But that doesn't deter Mary. She looks to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. Now, there are way too many things to go into that today. We've got other things I want to focus on. But was Mary pushing him into ministry? Uh, Was she trying to usurp God's place and say, no, no, now's the time? Uh, I really don't know. Those questions, uh, um, you know, they can be answered at another time. Well, what happens? This is what Jesus does. He looks around, and there at the entryway are six large stone jars. Now, these, these are large jars. They contain, the, the Greek contains, it says they contain two or three firkins. Now, how many of you use that word in a sentence this week? A firkin. A firkin is about eight and a half gallons, which means each of those water pots held probably a maximum of 25 gallons. So we've got six water pots, uh, 25, let's say we're maxed out, that's 125 gallons of water. When they changed into wine, that works out, if you do your math, about 2,400 servings of wine. Now that's, that's some wine. And what kind of wine is it? It's the best wine, okay? It is the best wine. Now, this is what Christ does. You would think after they've been celebrating and, and they've used up a lot of wine, maybe there's only a day left of the celebration. It really doesn't elaborate here, but he makes wine in abundance. Now, he does that with a lot of things. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? He didn't just make enough food to feed the 5,000. There were 12 baskets of leftovers. He blesses in abundance. His grace is never given to us just enough. It is given to us in abundance. In abundance. That's the outpouring of God's grace. Generosity. His glory, in a sense, is revealed in this sign of abundance. Twelve or Six water pots, 2,400 servings of wine. Now let's, let's stay with that for just a moment. The jars that were placed at the door were for the Jewish rite of purification. So that when you would come into a Jewish uh, household or, or event, you would be able to purify yourself with the water. You'd wash your hands, maybe pour a little on your head. But what we find here in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water pots that were set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. That's the size of them. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Now, it doesn't say they were empty, but Jesus tells them to fill them with water. So there's some assumption there that they were empty for some reason. And then they're filled to the brim. Now, for Jewish purification, and then they're empty. How can you purify yourself if there's no water in them? 
How can the Jewish guests come into the event and, and wash their hands and maybe a little bit on their head and, and purify themselves if there's nothing in the pot? They can't. They can't. So remember that. Remember that. A.W. Pink says, The Jewish system still operated, but it provided no comfort to the heart. It had degenerated into a cold mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. Israel has lost the joy of being the bride of our Heavenly Father. And see, if Christ is not at the core of your life, then you will not have a joy that goes on and on and on. Your joy will only be based upon the things of this world and the things that surrounds you. But if there is Christ in your heart, then there's a joy that cannot be taken. Christ alone can bring joy, can satisfy the real hunger that we have, can quench the thirst with the water of everlasting life. See, the aim, in a sense, of these water pots that, have em- that are empty and that are filled with water and then it turns into the best wine is really, part of it is to symbolize the fact that Judaism could not accomplish what Christ has done, what Christ has brought. And he has brought the new wine. Remember, the wineskins, okay? A word familiar with, with, with you, I hope. What happened was you had a wineskin. It was really a, a goat skin, and it was sewed up, and you poured wine into it, and then you placed it in there, and it fermented. And what happens when it ferments? It begins to expand. The gas begins to expand, and it stretches out like this, okay? And when it's done, then you can drink it. You don't go back and do that again in the same wineskin. Why not? There's no room to expand. There's no room to stretch. It would break the skin. You have to get a new wineskin. The same type of thing here. We have this old system that was not doing what it, you know, what the people had hoped. It was not getting them to God. It was not providing the salvation that they sought. But Christ brings the new wine. And it is what kind of wine? The best wine. And it is given to us in abundance. In abundance. Verse 8, give it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, again, but the servants knew, for they saw what had happened, the head waiter called to the bridegroom. Now, the head waiter would be the, uh, I don't know, the wedding planner in our day, the person running the reception, the person... Uh, from the embassy suites who keeps everything running so that the bride and groom don't have to worry about it. They take it to him, and he is, this is good. This is great wine. See, what happened was everybody served the best wine first, and as everybody's senses became dulled, how about that, Uh, then they brought out the bad wine. But the head waiter says, this is the best. You've done just the opposite. You've given us the best wine at the end, the best wine at the end. See, the master of the feast was so delighted with Jesus' wine that he had saved the best, that the, the practice was actually reversed from what was the norm. But we shouldn't be surprised at that because not only does Jesus give in abundance, but he gives the best to those who are his. Now, verse 9, that little portion in a parenthesis, but the servants who had drawn the water knew because he told them what to do and they knew they put water in those jars and when 
he comes out and says, this is great wine. You can imagine what they're thinking. I'll put water in there. Why is there wine in there now? Look at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. Nobody from the wedding followed him. Not even the servants who knew what happened followed Christ. Now, miracles, really the word is translated here as signs, are done for a theological purpose. They are not gratuitous. They are not just for show. I mean, let's, let's face it. If it was for show, what would Jesus have done? Okay? He'd have shown up on the first day, maybe gone into the square uh, where there were lots of people on, shopping, on the shopping day, and he'd have levitated everybody up about 50 feet and said, when you believe who I am, I'll put you down. Or maybe he'd gone over to the Mount of Olives or, and, and levitated the entire city of Jerusalem up in the air. He was the son of God. You know, it's, it's no big thing for him to do. And until the entire city came to grips that he was God. But he didn't do that. Remember, the Pharisees come and say, show us a miracle and we'll believe. He had done signs before. They just wanted something gratuitous. You know, show off for us, and then we'll believe. He never showed off. All of his miracles have theological significance. They are signs that point to something else. What kind of things point to something else? Oh, let me look. The sixth chapter, he feeds the 5,000. And then in the second part of that chapter, he says what? I am the bread of life. In the ninth chapter, he heals the man born blind. His eyes are open. Then he talks about being the light of the world. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Okay? His signs were done to point to theologically significant things. Never just for show. So when he turns this water into wine, it has that same theological significance. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Miracles, says, If we open such books as Grimm's fairy tales or the Italian epics, we find ourselves in a world of miracles so diverse that they can hardly be classified. Beasts turn into men, men into beasts or trees, trees talk, Ships become goddesses, and a magic ring can cause tables richly spread with food to appear in solitary places. If such things really happened, they would, I suppose, show that nature was being invaded, that it wasn't a regular course, it was something outside of it. But they would show she was being invaded by an alien power. The fitness of the Christian miracles and their difference from these mythological miracles lies in the fact that they show invasion by a power which is not alien. They are what might be expected to happen when she is invaded not simply by a god, but by the god of nature, by the power which is outside of her jurisdiction, not a foreigner, but the sovereign god. They proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but the king. But the king. Giving life to those who are dead. That's a miracle. But that's not suddenly making something appear on a table. 
where there was no hope otherwise. Jesus did a miracle that involved turning water in Jewish purification pots into wine. Wine symbolized joy, gladness, the things of life, the blood of Christ that is spilt for us for the forgiveness of sins. Christ gave this in abundance. And he says very clearly, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. Now today we'll drink Welch's grape juice. Cultural thing. I have friends who uh, at, at their churches, they serve wine. We serve Welch's. It's not the instrument there. It is the presence of Christ that comes when our hearts are right. We read the passage in 1 Corinthians earlier. When, when we confess our sins, when we lay ourselves before the Lord and seek his forgiveness and his power, that is what comes upon us, the power of Christ. The Lord gave us wine as a sign that the old system, the old man-made things, the works that, that we would do, do not please God, do not satisfy his desire, satisfy his, his, I can't even think of the word. They don't get us to heaven, our own works. It is the grace of Christ that is given to us freely. Only that which Christ provides could take us to the throne of grace. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, you provide for us what we cannot achieve ourselves. You have brought the new wine of salvation of Christ and have placed it before us. It's not the old ways. It's not the ways that we would, could, could possibly hope to work our way into your grace. That could never happen. There is one sacrifice now. And that was Christ, who shed his blood. And that blood washes us clean of sin. And you have chosen to symbolize that in the New Testament in wine and call us to come to the table that we might be refreshed, that we might be strengthened, that the lost may find Christ, that all of these things may come together, that that we would know your real presence in our lives. Prepare us, Heavenly Father, that as we come to your table, we might be acutely aware of the sacrifice of Christ and the new wine of salvation that he brings. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. In preparation for communion, let us stand and sing the two first the first two verses of two fifty six, the old rugged cross. Let's stand as we sing two fifty six. Mm-hmm. 